Hey friends, Andy Jenkins. Thanks for dropping in and listening, taking this journey with me. I'm talking about future grace. It is a concept I have kicked around for years. I've, you know, trying to make sense of just life, which at some level you might have even tapped out on that and think, ah, I don't, I don't know if I'm gonna go there. I don't know if I'm gonna do that. Uh, but, but really trying to find a basis that gives us confidence to walk forward in the future based on the hope that grace not only takes care of the past, but that it is enough for the present and that it does hold a promise for more, that there is no expiration date on it for us, for other people, and for this journey that we're walking through. Now, before I get started on this episode, I'm going to pick up where I left off in the previous I want to direct you down to the show notes really quickly. I've got a couple things there that I want to highlight for you. The first was this. There is a free best of soul wholeness audiobook for you right there. And here's let me just give you kind of what would be the sales pitch on it. It's absolutely free, so I don't think I'll have to sell it too hard. But a couple years ago, I wrote this really big book on emotional health. In it, I walked through three of the most common types of soul wounds that we all encounter. So triggers, that's when we react in the present to something as if it's the past. (laughs) Okay, I know you've done that. I've done it before too. And then you got to talk yourself off the ledge and go, oh, wait, hold on. I'm responding to you as if you are a completely different person and a totally different situation. And you go, yeah, that's wrong. Okay, well, let's figure out a way to walk in a healthy way towards that. Now, the most extreme diagnosable version of this is PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. However, goodness, we can all be affected in the present by stuff that occurred that was painful in the past. And so I talk through that. I also walk through this big one that I really believe more people deal with guilt and shame, especially in our culture, because honestly, we've uh, remove God from every situation that we possibly could. And so now we have no tool to deal with guilt and shame other than if somebody does something wrong that we disagree with, rather than trying to wrestle through a tough conversation and go, hey, I was probably part wrong. They're probably part wrong. That They may have certainly been more wrong for sure. I'll forgive them and I'll kind of acknowledge my peace in this tango. We just cancel them. Like we just disagree because of something they did. And often it's like a sliding moral skill because we don't even have a basis for that. So we just cancel them based on some artificial precept that we created, but it doesn't remove the feelings of guilt and shame. In fact, because there's no tool to deal with them, it probably amps it up even more. And then you do have the layer that there is real guilt out there and we need to deal with it. And there is real shame for things that we've done and things that have been done to us. And there is a tool and a way to move forward for that as well. The final soul wound that I talk about in that book is what I term as soul ties. Now, a soul tie is when your heart is connected to something to which it shouldn't be connected. In the extreme, we think of it as an addiction, a drug addiction or codependency, but but even that codependency would be a different type of thing because our hearts can also be tied to beautiful things 
in the wrong way, and that creates an unhealthy soul tie as well. So you're tied to a person in an unhealthy way. You're tied to a thing like work that God has gifted you and called you to do in an unhealthy way. And it looks like workaholism rather than stewarding your gifts and walking out your purpose. You know, that is such a complex one, soul ties. But we talk through each of those. And so what I've done is I've pulled, really I call it the best of soul wholeness. It should be probably the essence of soul wholeness because rather than giving you every single chapter that's in there, I've said, hey, here are the three that highlight these soul wounds. And then here's the three that probably most concisely talk about the cure, the fix, the walk it out in wholeness strategy. And so I invite you to take advantage of that right there. Uh, That is a great next best step for you. If anything that I'm talking about in this podcast is, uh, and goodness, a five-minute commercial, a five-minute intro. All right, so let's get let's get going. We got some work to do uh, about future grace. Uh, this one, I want to start tying together some of the stuff that I said in the previous episode. And I'm going to warn you, like I'm probably going to raise more questions than give answers. Uh, that's generally how some of this teaching works. But in the next one, I think we'll start tying some of this up. Um, all right, let's do it. Now, if you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you've got four Gospels in the New Testament. They're biographies of Jesus. Matthew, first one, Mark, Luke, and then John. Matthew, the first one, includes this interesting detail in his account of the crucifixion that the other three Gospel writers, the other three biographers, totally omit. Uh, Specifically, he writes that when Jesus died, darkness enveloped the entire planet, a major earthquake occurred, several tombs opened in a seismic shift, and once dead saints, so people who had died that were robust in their faith, that followed God, came back to life when Jesus died on the cross, and they began walking through the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you want to read all of this, uh, it's Matthew 27, 52 through 53. You can flip there while I'm talking right now. In fact, I'm going to put that link down there in the show notes to where you can go, no, no what was the verse? There it is. Now, notably, these people were seen by many of their loved ones. So they didn't just walk out, look around, go back into the tomb. Uh, Presumably, just like Lazarus was called forth from the dead in the book of John, these people went back to living their lives as if they had never been stung by death at all. Now again, when you look through the scripture, this is a monumental event Uh, yet it is not the same time that people cheated death. Now, by monumental event right there, I'm referring to these people coming back to life, not the cross. The cross, centerpiece of the timeline, significant, most significant event. Um, I'm talking specifically about these people coming back to life is not the first time people in Scripture cheated death. Uh, For instance, go way back in the Old Testament, a chariot of fire was sent to provide the prophet Elijah with the ride up to heaven. Or you go back into the book of Genesis, Enoch walked with God, and then he's just no more. It's like God just comes and says, hey, I'm going to take my friend and I'm going to get him. Um, Jesus once referred to the widow of Zarephath. That's another example where Elisha was sent to this widow 
to raise her son from the dead. Uh, throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus taunt death a few times. Uh, for instance, Mark 5, a ruler at the local synagogue, his name was Jairus. He sent his servants to ask Jesus to come heal his daughter. And while Jesus is talking to the servants, a woman meanders through the crowd. She's the one that's hemorrhaging. She has a flow of blood. It's a female-specific uh, hurt, uh, pain. And she thinks, oh, if, I, if only I could reach the hem of his garment and touch that, I would be made well. And so she reaches out, she touches him, and she's healed. Well, this takes a few moments. And by the time Jesus is ready to go with the servants to see Jairus' daughter, uh, more people return and say, hey, it's, you know, the servant say, hey, your daughter is dead. In fact, I believe it was actually Jairus himself that came to see Jesus, if, I, if I'm remembering it correctly. And he says, no worries, I'll come with you. Um, she's not dead. She's only sleeping. But when we get there, she's clearly dead. People are already mourning. And he brings her back to life. So we see this resurrection theme occurring over and over throughout the scripture. Now, um, there is the time when Jesus was called to Lazarus's tomb. That might be the most famous episode in scripture. Uh, again, some of these people cheating death by not dying. Some of these people cheating death by resurrecting. So, so in other words, some of them are going straight to what we would call the end game. Some of them are passing through death and then arising. The, the Lazarus event, it's really strange for a few reasons. Um, now, here's why. First of all, it seems he is super close with his family. But when Jesus hears, if you read the text, when Jesus hears John 11, so you kind of back up right before the story. When Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick and is at the point of death, it says that he heard that, so he decided to wait before going. It's almost like you would think this is his close friend at the point of death. Oh my goodness, like we got to go right now. But Jesus hears and he pauses. Uh, rather than rushing to resolve the problem, he waits. In fact, John actually includes that detail in another way. He says that Mary, who's Lazarus's sister, probably realized this. She told Jesus when he gets there, hey, he's dead if you had only come, meaning everybody likely knew that there was this pause. Here's another fact that makes it really interesting. Uh, this story contains the shortest verse in the entire Bible, <laughs> John eleven thirty five. 35. Uh, here, here's the verse, Jesus wept. Jesus cried. Uh, why did Jesus weep? That's the obvious follow-up question. Now, now, I've heard, and I've read it in various Bible commentaries, several slightly different suggestions. Uh, some people say this. They say Jesus cried because uh, Mary and Martha didn't believe in his power. However, that doesn't jive with the story. You know, Mary just said, hey, if you were here, you could have prevented this. And then they also say, hey, wait, you, you are the resurrection and you're the life. Uh, even though they have no grid for the resurrection. It wasn't like this is just common folklore that people are going around and getting resurrected. And it's not like 
the thing at the cross event has occurred where all of these people have come back to life, you know, they have this robust faith. Another commentator said this, uh, Jesus cried because he lost a close friend. He loved Lazarus and Lazarus is gone. Now, to be clear, the Bible does communicate his love for the family. It's explicitly clear that there is this intimate connection that Jesus has with them. But you got to remember, Jesus waited when he heard that Lazarus was sick. Hey, Jesus, Lazarus is sick. Okay, let's wait on purpose. That's what happened. So when you go, well, Jesus cried because he left Lazarus behind or Lazarus is now gone on. I don't know that that's the only explanation. You know, it, it, honestly, it could be a, a tangle of all of these. Uh, Jesus Christ, because no, Mary and Martha don't fully know all of his power, though they do have a robust faith quotient. Uh, Jesus cried because he lost a friend who's now faced death, is not there in person to greet him when he arrives. That that could have a bit of truth to it. Uh But I think there's another reason Jesus wept, why he was emotionally devastated. Here it is. Jesus broke down, I think, because he was pulling Lazarus back from an unbound eternity and back into a temporal timeline in which we currently live. Okay, so you get that? When Jesus arrives on the scene, if we're saying, as I declared in the previous episode, of this series. To be absent from the body is to be <laughs> buried in the ground, but also simultaneously to be present with Christ. To be absent from the body, present with Christ. Lazarus is buried in the tomb. He is present somewhere with the Father, as Jesus is here on earth. So Lazarus, not here, yet he's there. When Jesus is standing at that tomb, rolls away the stone, and says, Lazarus, come forth, Jesus is literally calling him from eternity, where he doesn't exist on the timeline, back into this time and space. And, and I know you think, well, that's really weird. That's what we believe. That's, that's what we believe. If you've ever buried someone and you think they're no longer here, but they're in heaven. They're no longer here. They're with God. They're no longer on this timeline. They're in eternity. They're no longer here where there's pain amidst the purpose, where there's problems amidst walking out your purpose. They're no longer here where there is crying and tears and where there is hurt and when there is disease and illness and chaos and terror and war and tribulation and stress and trauma. They're in a place where that doesn't exist. You, you believe that. I believe that. And so when Jesus calls Lazarus back forth to life here, he's not calling him back forth to life. He's alive, arguably, Lazarus is more alive than he's ever been. And I, and I think this is why Jesus doesn't say, oh, Lazarus, come alive. This is why I think he doesn't look at Jairus and say, hey, your daughter's gone. She's expired. He says, she's sleeping. Her body's asleep. She's clearly somewhere else. Lazarus, in that culture, by the way, uh, people did believe that after three days, the soul was gone. Like, it's, it's a permanent 
gone. Like there are three days of mourning. You know, some people believed. I don't want to get too many far into the weeds on that. But like after the fourth day, it was just they're gone. Like they're in the netherworld. They're in the next place. They're in the better place. So culturally, there's so much going on here that Jesus is showing, no, 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 I'm here and there at the same time. I'm here, but my power extends there. I'm there, but my power extends from there to here also. Like this flows both ways. There's a very thin line that separates this. And so Lazarus, not come back to life, Lazarus, you're probably more alive than you've ever been ever before where all of the problems, including whatever it was that killed you, that caused the body to be done, where none of that exists, come back from there to here. Now, in some way, I think that there is a layer right there of why Jesus wept. Do I really want to call a friend back from a place where there's no pain, there's no problem, they are more fully alive than they've ever been or will ever be? Like they are reaching a peak that continues peaking out and leveling up and there's more unfolding revelation continuously. Do I really want to call them back from that to this? I mean, you've probably thought the same thing. You've had people that you love that have died, they've gone on, and you say they're in a better place. Uh, They're not dealing with that thing anymore. They're not dealing with those hurts anymore. They're not dealing with that disease or that chaos any longer. They're in a better place on multiple layers and levels and if you were asked would in that moment even after you've just lost them do you miss them absolutely would you bring them back if you could from that to this probably not jesus calls lazarus he weeps i think it's multi-layered layer number one yeah maybe mary and martha as robust as their faith is they don't fully grasp everything that he can do there's more is he crying because his friend's not there yeah maybe i think there's probably a layer to that the bigger thing probably we're bringing him back from there to here from the most fully alive version to as beautiful as this life is to here let me add another layer. The first fall semester of seminary, I was introduced to the work of a theologian. His name was Stanley Grenz, G-R-E-N-Z. He wrote this massive book, Theology for the People of God. I still remember it. It was a tan book. I took the jacket off the book because the jackets would always get bent up. A tan book with a red spine that had like, it, it had to be reinforced. It was so thick. So it had like what seemed like this duct tape. I mean, this thing was, the way I remembered it was like 750 pages, but it might've been more like a thousand. Theology for the people of God was the first 
required book for my introduction to systematic theology. Now, systematic theology, let me define that really quickly. It is when uh, people who are studying our faith, they look through the scripture and they kind of categorize different things and say, hey, what does all of the scripture teach about this specific topic? So from the scripture, what do we know, for instance, about Jesus? So let's look at what the Old Testament prophesied about him. Let's look at how other people might have interacted in the Old Testament in ways that he would act. Let's look at what we see him do in the New Testament. Let's look at what uh, people after the life of Jesus said about him. Let's look at how what we'd call Christology, our beliefs about Jesus were formed. And so it really kind of topically organizes certain important subjects throughout the scripture. So if I said, hey, what, what does the Bible teach us about uh, salvation? You would basically be giving me street-level systematic theology. If I said, hey, what does the Bible teach us about grace? You would give me street-level, not, not that it's not based on Bible and other theology and stuff that you've read, but just mean conversational. You'd put it in real-life terms that you and I can understand and interact with each other. You'd put it in street-level theology. Okay, that is systematic theology. It's when we kind of organize our thoughts based on subjects. So that book is, you know, 750 to 1,000 pages of just motoring through every important subject in the scripture so that we can get a grid whereby we, we understand. Now, this guy, you might think systematic theologians would be all, uh, I don't, I don't want to say professorial because I, I, I had the great pleasure of having some amazing professors that really interacted with the world and with their students more like that snapshot of Robin Williams in Dead Poet Society, where they loved their subject matter and they loved the art and craft of teaching and they loved people as much as either one of those. And the perfect world for them was to synthesize all three together. One of my classmates, in seminary, his name was Jay. He actually went to school for a semester to learn with Stanley Grins. And he said that Stanley Grins, uh, he, Stanley's now deceased, was the type of guy that if they went out to lunch, he would never meet a stranger. And he's still professorial, right? Uh, but he would never meet a stranger. So the waitress might come over and within three to five minutes, like he knows her name. And it wasn't flirtatious, it was friendly. He knows her name. Uh, he's there at the table. He's about to pray for lunch. And he says, hey, you got anything going on that we can pray for you? You're welcome to stay over here or you don't have to. We'll pray for you whether you're going on with the work day or whatever. And all of a sudden, these people are telling their life story and their biggest problem moments and painful considerations. And grins then has the person's number with the promise that his wife will follow up with them if it's a female and meet them for coffee or something. You know, this is the days before social media, a decade before social media. This is uh, the days really before everybody even had a cell phone. <laughs> so it may take you two or three days to get in touch with somebody because you got to leave voicemails and all that. And if you did have a cell phone, you know they charged you by the minute, and it was like fifty or sixty bucks for you know thirty minutes a month. And so at the uh, at each minute, right before the minute was about to come up, there would be this little boop you know, 10 seconds before to let you know, oh, hey, get off the phone unless you go over a minute because if you went over even a second, it was, oh, you got to pay for a whole minute. 
Ah, well, Stanley Green's book, I read it in about two weekends uh, from this very personal theologian who was deeply in love with the Creator and was honored to interact with people. It, just an incredible guy. And uh, I kind of got this habit when I was in seminary. I, I realized when I was in college, I was kind of headed towards law school. And when I got to seminary, I was behind. I hadn't read all these books by authors that other guys had read. And so I, I would make a calendar, and it was just a daytime or a paper one, like I still use today. In fact, you know, if you want one, I can send you what I use. I'll put a link in the show notes below, and you can get the same planner. I think it's like eight bucks. You can try it, and I think it'll work well for you. What I would do is at the beginning of the semester, I would flip through that planner, and I would write the significant dates when every test or exam occurred, as well as when every paper was due, and even what subject matter I had to be responsible for talking about in the different classes throughout the class period. And so that way, uh, generally, I would start reading the big books, knock them out, I would start writing the papers. You know, the first month of, of the semester, I would have every paper done for the entire semester so that I could spread the load out and I'm not just under the gun cranking this out. And then the week before the paper was due, I'd read back through it, fix my draft, you know, that was already a pretty robust draft, polish it up with anything else I'd learned, reflect it on, turn it in. So early on, I read this book and just push through it so I can manage my time. In that, with highlighters, sitting at the coffee shop in Barnes & Noble there in Waco, Texas, uh, was it Baylor? I, I noticed something very unique about how Grins approached theology. Most theologians write about God using three specific omni-words in the heading on who God is and what God's like in their systematic theology. So they write, I'll define these for you, that God is omniscient, that God is omnipowerful, that God is omnipresent. So what they mean is omniscient. Omni means all. So God is all shunt from science, all science. God knows all things. God is omniscient. God knows all things, all-powerful, omnipowerful. He's all-powerful. He is strong enough to, to do anything. Yeah, and here's where guys would get in a little theological quandary. Is God so strong that he can make a rock so big that he can't lift it? You know, dumb stuff like that. You know that's not what it means. Omnipowerful, all-powerful, mental gymnastics aside, and then omnipresent, that's the one I want to lock in on, all present. Uh, now, Grins had a unique angle on each of these. Specifically, on the final one, omnipresent, I found this unique, I'm going to say it like this, comfort and consideration. Now, I'm going to paraphrase him in my own words because I looked and I can't find the book. I think the book is in a box in my attic. Okay, so to paraphrase how he views omnipresent. Most people, when they come to the idea of omnipresence, they think of God's omnipresence as him being present everywhere. He's present to everything. 
So that means God's here with me. He's there with you. He's, you know, on the North Pole, on the South Pole. He's in Alaska. He's in China. He's in the White House right now with your unfavorite politician, whoever your unfavorite politician on either side of the aisle might be. We think of him as being present to everything. Here's what Grin said, though. Again, I'm paraphrasing. Let's flip the script. Let's look at it a different way. Rather than looking at those things as they're the center, I'm the center of the universe and God is present to me. You're the center of the universe and God is present to you. You know, Washington, D.C. is the president of the universe and God is present to D.C. Rather than looking at those things as the center and God moving towards them, let's make God the great object of the universe and make everything present to God. Okay, so literally, he is the one sitting at the the chessboard of history, and he is present to all the pieces. Not controlling all the pieces. He's present to every piece. Now, now catch this. Every piece, past, present, and future at the exact same time time. Why? Because he doesn't exist on a timeline. He exists in eternity, everything, everywhere, all at once, at the same time, present to him. Now, I'll come back and talk a little bit more about that phrase, everything, everywhere, all at once, present to him in the next episode. Stick a pin in that. If this is true, it means that God becomes the core force, the centerpiece of the cosmos. This is really why David asked, where can I go from your presence? Psalms 139. And he says, if I go to the highest height, he doesn't say it's because you're chasing me. Where can I go? Like, you won't get off my tail. Where can I go? Like, leave me alone. He says, no, where can I go from your presence? If I go to the highest height, you're there. You're already there. If I go to the lowest depth, you're there. He says, you literally hem me in. You're before me and you're after me, behind me, is what he means. There's nowhere I could go from your presence. He is literally everywhere. In Revelation 14, this will blow your mind. It shows us that Jesus rules heaven and he rules hell. Like somehow we have it in our idea that there's this one domain in the universe, you know, in the eternal universe, where Satan has authority. And you probably, like me, when you were in high school, you might have gone to these judgment house, you know, Christian versions of haunted house, where you got the devil running around popping everybody in the butt with a pitchfork like he rules it. And you don't want to go to that bad place. You want to go to the good place. Well, in the end, Satan doesn't rule anything. It says in Revelation 14 that, now wrap your head around kind of the limited descriptor here that... Satan and the demons are tormented in the presence of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? The Lamb is Jesus. Ah, just another idea. You know, if the universe is just a span of his hand, okay, where did that idea come from? Well, it's because he's everywhere present at once. All things, at all times, present to him because he's everywhere, but yet it's present to him. He's already there. So it's present to him. It's not like he's popping around, you know, moving like he's really super fast trying to get everywhere. I mean, it's literally like it's right there to him. 
Now, you and I don't experience everything, everywhere, all over the place, all at one time. We, we exist on time. We're, we're, we are eternal beings, but yet you and I must exist on a timeline, like to where things only move forward. Can't, can't even go backwards. Things go forward sequentially one second after another second after another second after another second. But this life we're told, this physical aspect of our life, uh, James says it's just a vapor. Life's a vapor. We're eternal for something more. This timeline, we're here for now, but there's more. And yet God has invited us in here into this moment to experience that something more while we're here on the timeline. The boundaries that that timeline creates are a gift. Think about it. I couldn't emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally, intellectually. Man, I wake up sometimes and the stuff I have to do for the next hour is overwhelming. Uh, sometimes I even get through that hour and I look, okay, I got through that, but the next three, four days, man, it's thing after thing after thing. Overload. You think about all of life that is just the vapor on the timeline, but that timeline is a gift. We couldn't handle it all. You and I can't even handle having advanced information about the catastrophes and calamities that are coming our way, the health issues that we're going to face ourselves or that our loved ones are going to go through, the bankruptcy, the financial season of struggle, uh, a foreclosure, a loss of a job, a divorce, uh, an unwanted disillusion of a once close friendship or other type of relationship, the move, away from, I mean, you start adding up all of the negative of any size things that have happened in your life all at one time. It would just be overwhelming. We have to get it on the timeline. Yet somehow on here, we know that God is present and all things are present to Him. Not that we're hoping that He's going to come and show up in the situation like that he might come and be present but literally god exists as grin said everything is now present to him he's the center if he is the center that means all things can work together for the good if he is the center means he knows the end from the beginning if he's the center That means all things can be made beautiful in his time because he's literally holding all things. Where do you go from here? Sit in it. Let it marinate. Soak on it. I've shared several layers with you in the next episode. We'll start tying it together. Been through a tough season dealing with hard things, take the next step, grab that link in the show notes, best of soul wholeness audio. I'll see you in the next episode.